Welcome, listeners, to the NK News podcast recorded on April 11, 2018, here in Seoul, Korea. I am your host, Chaco Zwetslut, and today I have Professor Ross King with me here in the studio. Don't forget that you can download or subscribe to our podcast at not only iTunes, but also Stitcher, SoundCloud, YouTube, and all other good podcast platforms. Also, you can save $50 off your NK News subscription by using the code PODCAST at the checkout. Ross King is a professor of Korean and head of the Department of Asian Studies at the University of British Columbia, but he's also much more than that. I think he is a polymath, and like very few people, his academic inquiry seems to know no bounds. If anyone wants to see an example of that, go to YouTube and look up the presentation that he gave to the Royal Asiatic Society Korea branch late last year. The title is James Scarth Gale, Korean Literature in Hanmun and Allo Metropolitan Missionary Orientalism. It's a long title and a mouthful just saying it, but fascinating. Stuff. Welcome, Professor King, and thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Well, let's start by talking about how you got into Korea and Korean studies in the first place. What was the beginning for you? Well, there's a long version and a short version. I'll, I'll give the, the, the relatively short version. I grew up in a really small, all-white town in Wisconsin and then went away to boarding school at age 14 on the East Coast of the United States. And we sat every morning uh, in assembly for half an hour from 10 to 10.30 and sat alphabetically. To my left was a whole string of Kims. To my right was a whole string of Lees. Uh, David Moon sat behind me and Chini Jun sat in front of me mm. and, and off to 11, 11 o'clock in front, another row over was David Hyun. I was surrounded by Koreans. Korean Americans. And this was very uh, interesting to me. And then I went to, I started college at Yale, was doing Japanese because they didn't have Korean, but my professor was also a specialist in Korean. Mm. So there was a, a, if you will, a kind of personal serendipitous side in terms of who was, I, you know, my, my surrounding, my students from high school, and then um, some ac- an academic or intellectual side to it through linguistics and Japanese and Korean at university. All right, so I've invited you today on the NK News podcast after looking through a draft of your paper titled How Are North Korean Women Supposed to Speak? Linguistic Etiquette and Women's Language in Official North Korean Language Planning Discourse. Another mouthful of a title. What made you interested in researching this topic? My, I, I owe this one to my dear wife. Uh, a few years back, maybe 2014 or so, she happened to read in the local Korean press a, a reprint or just a blurb about this article that had appeared in the North Korean, in one of the North Korean journals the hmm. year before, complaining about how North Korean women were answering their cell phones on the bus hmm. in Pyongyang. And I thought, oh, that's strange. Hmm. And then I went and chased it down and in the meantime had, had collected another bunch of, of, of resources sources about politeness and Mm -hmm. sort of put two and two together. And then uh, that's where it all started. What caught my eye initially was that you used a comic strip or a couple of comic strips from the North Korean women's magazine, Choson Yosong. Tell us about this magazine. Who reads it and what kind of contents does it have? Uh, I actually focus most of my research on the language planning journals, but I had been flipping through Choson uh, Yosong just to see if it paid any attention to uh, language issues because it, it has a, a, a range of, of mm. issues that it covers and, and regular features. It's targeted at, at women. I, I, I can't, I don't know for a fact which women read it, yeah. but I think it's a semi-popular mag, uh, you know, journal in North Korea for the general public right. and targeted, obviously, at women and how to be good North Korean, uh, you know, communist uh, uh, women, mothers, uh, you know, wives, etc. Uh, there were fairly regular uh, little corners in, in the journal talking about questions of language and, and linguistic etiquette, and that's mm-hmm. where I found the, that one cartoon. You also used as source material the N- uh, North Korean periodical Munhwa 
or Huxup or Cultured Language Learning. Is that an academic journal? No, uh, I would say not. I, um, it's targeted at basically Kugo Sansing, uh, you know, uh, Korean language teachers in the North Korean school system okay. from, I think, from basically from kindergarten all the way up through post-secondary. I think it also does attract a few general readers, but it seems to be targeted mostly at teachers. And before we get into the guts of this article, have you recently published research on any other aspects of North Korean cultural or social life? I mean, I, I've published a number of things going back into the 90s about North Korean language policy. For example, the way they have tried to incorporate certain North Korean dialect uh, words in, you know, into the standard language, uh, language policy more generally. And then one piece in particular that I'm, I'm, I'm kind of proud of, which is very obscure, is uh, an article I wrote a few years back on on North Korean philatelic imagery. I was about to mention that. I've actually got, it's a very rare book published in Austria, uh, and the chapter that you wrote on uh, stamp collecting in North Korea was absolutely fascinating. I, I, I read that, and I heartily recommend it to uh, to anybody. Uh, well, the, what I'm it. particularly proud of with that piece, I mean, I can't be proud of it, but it, it's in color. Yeah. Uh, and so someone went to a great deal of expense to, to make that volume available in color, and that, that, that makes all the difference for a book on arts. All right, now let's get into the, uh, the heart of this research, about how North Korean women are supposed to speak. You describe a certain moral panic that may be underway in North Korea. Can you t tell us more about that? So, okay, so this article from back in 2013, which flagged or, 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 you know, sort of exposed a sort of anxiety about the way North Korean women were answering their telephones without ever really mentioning the, the source of that anxiety. It's clear that the, the target um, the, the, is, is South Korean, is invasive South Korean linguistic forms. Mm. Um, so is that possibly from the, the dramas that are smuggled in? Absolutely. I mean, uh, it's, you know, we know that there's lots of Korean pop culture, uh, you know, finding its way in typically on USBs, maybe DVDs, I think mostly uh, USBs these days. And so clearly it, it's starting to have an impact and enough so that an official government publication flagged it and essentially, you know, laid down a kind of warning saying this is, we, we need to watch out for this. Mm. You cite uh, scholar Brian or B.R. Myers uh, when he says, uh, or he writes about, quote, the North Koreans belief in their innate moral superiority to all other the peoples. Uh, are North Koreans really taught that? I believe they are, but I don't think it's a unique, I don't think it's unique to North Koreans. I mean, the, the book he cites that in is, is, is the title is The Cleanest Race, mm -hmm. and where he talks about how North Koreans are taught that they're this inherently, innately clean, but also moral and morally good mm. race. But I, I think that the roots for that go back pretty deep into the Chosun, where there was a, you know, for centuries, a concern with, with um, moral propriety, with self-cultivation, with Neo-Confucian notions of, of ethics and morality. Uh, and I think that's probably where you would find the roots. And I don't think it's so terribly different in South Korea, but with a lot of cultural phenomena, what you find is that if something's a little bit off the scale or to the right, especially politically in the South and a little bit wacko mm. in, in the North, it, it becomes state policy mm. and in the South, it's still, it's fringe. Yeah. Now you write that uh, there is ample evidence in the published North Korean literature of sustained attention to this connection between linguistic politeness and morality. Could you tell us a bit about that? 
Uh, well, there's a couple sides to that. Uh, one is, I mean, there, there's a long history in North Korea of um, very concerted efforts in language planning, uh, a sort of instrumentalist view of language, which says uh, you can play with it, you can mold it, uh, you can do top-down kinds of efforts at change, which is very different from, say, Western bourgeois liberal societies where the attitude is the invisible hand, you don't mess with your language, you know, you don't intervene. So um, on that side, lots of linguistic policy uh, more consistently in some ways than in the South. But the morality side is also not, not unique to North Korea. Uh, going back already to, you know, pre-1945 Soviet times, a concern with what is socialist morality, what is communist morality, uh, East Germany as well. And I have to assume that when the, when the, when the North, when the, when the Soviet Koreans came into North Korea after 1948 and sort of helped set up the North Korean apparatus, that they imported and set put in place a lot of those kinds of Soviet, um, if you will, cultural practices, including a, a discourse about communist morality, which essentially collapses the difference between public and private morality. Now, most listeners, even those who don't speak Korean, will know that traditionally the Korean language has been one with many different levels of formality and speech registers, and that there are various ways of lowering the speaker and elevating the listener by using different verb endings or sometimes wholly different verbs, different nouns and honorific endings and titles. So how did women in pre-modern Korean society traditionally fit into this schema? Well, of course, the, we know that the Korean language has had those speech levels and had complex honorifics going back as, as far as the language is attested, and in fact, even earlier than Hangul. So we have 11th and 12th century sources, and we, so we know it's been there for a long time. But we don't actually have any explicit metalinguistic attention to mm -hmm. it until the missionaries come and start writing grammars. Instead, what you have, you do have conduct manuals and etiquette manuals from late Chosun, uh, say 19th century, basically, maybe some 18th century, which, in, you know, and some of them quite elaborate, some of them specifically targeted at women. And some of those conduct manuals also include sections on linguistic behavior. But what's interesting there is that the focus is not specifically on forms. It's not, there's no focus on linguistic forms or endings or particles. Ah. It's more on uh, demeanor, comportment, mm. tone of voice, this kind of thing. So the, 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 the fascination with the nuts and bolts of the grammatical side of it is a decidedly modern phenomenon uh, that we don't see until essentially contact with um, outside, you know, outsiders. When Western missionaries were writing some of the early uh, descriptions of the Korean language and textbooks, did they differentiate between men's and women's speech forms at all? Or is it... Is it well, that's a great question. Uh, and, I, you know, I, I read a lot of those materials and I, I cannot recall off the top of my head any a salient example mm. of, a, of a Western writer honing, uh, homing in on, on women's speech per se. Yeah. Uh, I cannot think of any no. Okay, now turning to North Korea. North Korea is, of course, at, at least nominally a socialist and worker state, one that's gone through a, a revolution in which there's supposed to be no more classes or hierarchy outside, of, of course, of the, uh, the Kim family. Isn't there a dissonance between this idea of uh, having honorifics and speech registers in a language in a uh, post-revolutionary, you know, classless state? Uh, there is, absolutely. And that's what's so interesting about the discourse on linguistic etiquette is that, well, well first of all, I mean, the, the same paradox 
exists in South Korea, which is a democracy, right? Mm -hmm. Where again, people are, you know, you're supposed to be doing away with those hierarchies. So I think, you know, both North Korea and South Korea, and in fact, modern Korea in general, starting already in the colonial period, has had to wrestle with this notion of how do you reconcile hierarchy built into your, to the nuts and bolts of of your language with uh, ideals of a communist or a democratic society. Uh, But the North, uh, you know, has, what they've done is gone to great ends to construct a, a rather elaborate discourse, which on the one hand celebrates it. Honorifics are something, um, they're honorable. They're, they're a good yep. thing to be celebrated because they are indigenous. Uh, they are pure Korean and North Korean, you know, everything everything in North Korean academia is all academia is about celebrating the, the indigenous and the pure and the local uh, as opposed to foreign or Sino this or that. But they've also found a way um, to make it work, for example, with um, the right well, royal family, with the Kim family, with the way that you're supposed to refer to and address uh, the great leader and his, you know, his his family and mm. so on. So putting aside North and South, yeah. uh, the 20th century of Korea has seen uh, a fair mm. flattening of these levels, uh, whether, you know, it's North or South. Right. Um, but it's not something that can happen overnight. And these kinds of, um, as soon as anything, as soon as any linguistic phenomenon rises to the level of salient where speakers start doing metalinguistic things about it, then it involves ideology. Politics comes in. Uh, and so uh, that's why we see this really elaborate, very highly politicized discourse in the North, yeah. uh, which again is different from what's happening uh, in the South around honorific. Now, looking specifically at women, you write, such linguistic deference protocols for the nation's leaders are the hallowed duty of all North Koreans, but the burden on Korean women is all the heavier as they are tasked with the additional role of modern these protocols in the roles of mother and educator. Could you talk a bit more about this? Most of the literature on women in communist societies, you know, starting with a lot of good research on the Soviet Union and the former East Bloc, always makes the point that uh, although technically women were liberated in these communist societies, they ended up bearing a kind of double burden where on the one hand, they, they became producers in the workforce and you know, were taken out of the home to become producers, but also reproducers because yeah, they, they still had to to bear children. And then at the end of the working day, they had, you know, they still have to come home, you know, put dinner on the table and do all the housework and so on. If you read all these different articles, and there are many of them over the decades. This is in the uh, Munhwa O'Haksa. Mostly Munhwa O'Haksa, but also in Chosun Yasung. Every every article will generally, uh, you know, yield, say, three or four descriptors that, you know, this is the way women's speech should sound. And then if you make a long list of them, if you compile it all, I think I came up with a list of like 25 or so different descriptors. And those would be soft, docile, gentle, cautious, accommodating, you know, essentially a long list of uh, fairly stereotyped attitudes as to uh, a patriarchal man's ideal mm-hmm. image of what a woman should be, yeah. should be like. Um, but, you know, but it also includes things like it has to be moral and it also has to be revolutionary. So it's got these sort of North Korean twists to it as well. And there, and there are also specifically a sort of uh, footnotes as to when it's it's okay not to be docile and gentle and polite and so on, which, of course, is when you're talking about American imperialists right. and so on. Yeah. Uh, Kim Il-sung wrote that, uh, quote, women should be womanlike, Nyosong Dawa, courteous, plain and simple speech, actions and comportment raise one's dignity and make it possible to be respected and trusted. 
unquote. So I take it that uh, the great leader Kim Il-sung wasn't a, a feminist, no, as we understand it in the def- West. Definitely not. And in fact, there's an even better quote in Brian Meyer's book, uh, which he cites from the summit between um, Kim Dae-jung and Kim Jong-il back in, was it 2002, where allegedly Kim Jong-il said to Kim Dae-jung, you know, w- women should just go home and, and do the laundry. Oh, dear. But um, yeah, that particular quote is another quote that often accompanies these, uh, you know, because it's pretty much de rigueur in these articles to start with a quote from one of the leaders. But what's interesting about that quote is in the Korean itself, it's quoting him not sort of in writing, but actually from, I think, on the the spot guidance type Uh, of situation. So it's actually him speaking and and the sentence ends and he says, Uh He uses the hao form, which is now obsolete in the South, but but it's considered a macho and a masculine form. And so they put that, you know, in his mouth in a very sort of, again, gender kind of form when they quote it. Uh, I, I do feel it's uh, necessary or at least um, worthwhile pointing out the, the irony of uh, two white men, you and I, yes. sitting here talking about uh, cultural linguistic policy uh, relation to Korean women. We are aware of our uh, of our privileged uh, Well, pos- I mean, there, there's, a, there's, there's an even bigger irony, which is that, of course, no one really knows how North Koreans speak in everyday life. This is all based on, on paper publications, and you would have to go there and do field work. But of course, that's virtually impossible for anybody to do. Yeah, that's, yeah that is true. I, speaking to uh, North Korean refugees is, is about the only uh, But even only that, way. even that's dangerous because they're no longer in their yep. original context uh, and you can't step into that context again twice. So how does this ladylike image sit with Kim Il-sung's own wife as a gun-toting gorilla depicted in North Korean paintings as defending her man with a revolver against the evil Japan, Japanese Imperialists. Well, in a couple of ways, because actually Kim Jong-soo is frequently trotted out as the ideal model for North Korean women to follow in their speech behavior. And they often cite her as how she always was guarded in her speech and mm. spoke very sort of deferentially and politely to her husband and so on. Uh, but actually where she gets in line with the image you just shared with yeah. us in the articles that talk about when it's okay not to be sort of polite and when it's okay to spit fire, as one of the articles says, mm. when you're talking about, you know, the imperialist running dogs and the you know, American jackals and so on. Again, she is the one that is cited as the ideal example of how to, you know, sort of gnash your teeth while talking about the American imperialists. Right. So she, she, she figures pretty prominently in both, in both ways. Right. Well, now let's uh, talk about the, uh, the two cartoons that you uh, included in your paper. You got them from uh, Joseon Yasong. Mm-hmm. Can you walk us through the first cartoon? Uh, the first cartoon, uh, it's a series of, of six frames. A gentleman comes to the door of the apartment mm-hmm. looking for the head of the household, looking for the man of, uh, of the house. The lady of the house sort of opens the door uh, slightly ajar, sticks her head out and, and, you know, and says, who might that be? So, you know, and he, the man is using very polite, formal forms. He starts off with Annyeonghashimnika and she comes back. Uh, so they're, they're, And each of the frames, by the way, has, so has three people. It's got the man knocking at the door, yep. the lady of the house answering the door, and then in between them, at about half their height, is this little boy kind of looking up at, at them both. And uh, essentially, each frame, the lady responds to the man, mm-hmm. but in a form that has dropped the the polite particle yo. So uh, she, you know, the first frame, nuguna, uh, 
who might you be? Yeah. And the little boy's bubble says, yo, you know, essentially adding the, the polite yo. So yeah. yo, the idea being that yo is very much reserved for feminine speech. It's a, it's a woman's form mm. in North Korea. We're told that North Korean men rarely use it. Uh, of course, even in the South, it's, it's still got lingering sort of flavor of, mm. of a feminine form. So this carries on for several frames. Every time the woman says something, the boy adds yo uh, uh, to what she says uh-huh. and becomes increasingly sort of strident. So mm. the third by the third frame, his yo has a question mark and then a, a, um, a, a an exclamation mark. point. And then she looks down at him in the fourth uh, frame and says, you know, who the heck are you? Yeah. He keeps saying yo, yo all the time. And he, and he explains, oh, I just couldn't help myself standing here. Uh, I felt the need to add yo to the end of your sentences, mm-hmm. uh, which might have been a good place to end the cartoon, right. but it goes on for two more frames. And then, then she says again, uh, uh, fifth frame, Warago, meaning what? And, he, and then he, he, he sticks in the yo again, uh, you know, very insistently. Right. And then the last frame, which is the one where most South Koreans, I think if this happened to them, would smack the boy upside the head <laughs> because he says, then he, and, he, and he stands there with his sort of index finger raised. Like and he's a teaching. Sort of, like, yeah, like he's admonishing her yeah. and says, you know, yo is something that always makes you look good, even though it's just this one little syllable. So here's this young yeah. male, you know, this young boy, yeah. literally disciplining, you know, and sort of finger wagging right. uh, um, an adult uh, and a woman uh, as to how she should be speaking Korean, uh, which, which is in some ways uh, quite remarkable. And again, if it was in South Korea, he'd be smacked upside the head. But would it be fair to say by dropping the yaw that she's either being rude or suggesting an implied intimacy? Sure. I mean, that's the, the that's, that's the way it normally works. But right. clearly, the, the official discourse would like to override that. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and, and the, the article that, that sort of kicked off this whole project was really clear that part of the problem or what was what was instigating this panic was that the forms, the, the way they were being used by these women on the bus, yeah. uh, they were confounding the difference between male and female. And they were, they were muddying the difference between deference and honorification, between high and low. This is clearly anathema to whoever these ideologues are that are, are sort of crafting all of this in North Korea. Now, tell us something about the uh, the second cartoon. What's happening there? The second cartoon uh, is um, essentially uh, a four-frame uh, cartoon illustrating... Hey, do you see this as being one one narrative or is it the four individual vignettes? I see it as one narrative okay. uh, and, and because the way it was framed in, in the magazine uh, in, in the Chosan Yosan was simply a sort of typical example of how a couple at home ideally should be interacting with each other in terms of the forms they use. Okay. And so in, in, the, in each frame, what happens is that the man yeah. is using fairly macho forms, clearly masculine forms. Uh, Forms and he doesn't use yo, uh, and he's he's also not. In fact, he, he's 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 using in a way panma. At least he's not mm-hmm. putting any yos on it, and he's not using hamnidache. Right. So the first thing, thing says, you know, momo hekungre hariodan kashinde. There's kind of you know dot dot dots. Right. Whereas she uses the honorific she to her husband, calls him tangshin, refers to herself as chega and deferential, yeah. and then you know uses the momo hapshida, which is a formal form rather than haja, for yeah. example, or even haja. 
Jajayo, which they do say in North Korea. Uh, it's really just uh, trying to show how the powers that be think that these forms should go in a family situation. Whether they really talk like that yeah. is a whole other question. So what can we learn from both of these cartoons about ways that women are meant to speak? Well, I mean, the, the, it's it's pretty conservative and pretty traditional and pretty old-fashioned in terms of uh, the, the position of women. They're not, they're not really on an equal playing field linguistically. Brian Myers has also talked in his in that book we just mentioned before, The Cleanest Race, about how it's always the women who are chosen to be the kind of symbol of the of the race, of the right. people, and, and and portrayed as pure and and you know they're the ones in all the images that are always wearing traditional dress, the men yeah. are never wearing and so on. And so I think it's part of all that uh, as well. You can go to the nknews.org website and find the page for this particular episode to look at the cartoons that we've just been discussing uh, for your reference and viewing pleasure. In your paper, you write that you've come to two conclusions, one about honorable versus dishonorable honorifics, which sounds a bit like a tautology, and the other one about top-down state-driven campaigns around linguistic etiquette. So could you flesh out those two conclusions a little? Sure. So the the point about honorable versus dishonorable honorifics, which does sound initially uh, tautologous, is is actually referring to pre-existing research out there on Japan. Japanese being the other obvious uh, language that has you know equally elaborate honorifics, and where there's been a similar debate as to what is the role of these honorifics in what is supposed to be a democratic society. And so both in Japan and in Korea, you've had these debates: Are honorifics a good thing? You know. Are they an honorable thing or are they dishonorable? Do we want to get rid of them? Mm. And so clearly the North Koreans, you know, as part of their their ongoing language planning sort of effort, have created an elaborate discourse which embraces and and, and finds good uh, these these honor these speech levels and honorification devices in the language. And, and in so doing, have also come up with a, a new and different kind mm. of uh, women's language. Because the, uh, on, in terms of other research out there, again, about Japan... Mm which likewise is is fairly well known for having a, a very specifically you know distinct register of women's language that the argument there and this is a colleague at Stanford who's written about this uh, Miyako Inoue she basically says women's language modern modern women's language or stereotype registers like this have their origins in capitalism and in consumption mm. and so the North Korean example is a is a very is a counterexample, counter-example. And, and a very you know a, a very different kind right. of top down as a to you know, say bottom-up, you know, consumption-driven, capitalist-driven uh, phenomenon. So that I think is a, is a new and different thing. After the conclusion, you have a section titled "North Korea's Biggest Fears." What are those fears? That um, that section is is essentially drawing a comparison with some research I did about ten years ago when I was examining North Korean language planning journals up until about 2005, 2006. And what was interesting was that up until about 2005, 2006, the concern in these North Korean journals was very much with English and English as an evil language, as a language killer, as this bulldozer eradicating endangered languages and so on. And so you did find, not a, there wasn't a lot of this, but yeah, I mean, you would find articles about uh, endangered languages in this and that part of the world, you know, and the role that English was playing in kind of 
making their existence even more precarious. And what's different now, as of 2013 in this article that started this whole sort of wild rabbit chase, is that the, the English is no longer the threat. The threat now is South Korean. Okay, um, but without saying but it. But without right? ever saying it. But yeah. I mean, you know, where else are they going to get these Korean forms from? There's no place else to get them. Mm. And so um, essentially, there's a, you, you, what you feel, what you sense from reading this article and subsequent pieces that identify certain speech forms as not our style and as, you know, essentially not desirable is, you know, first of all, they're all South Korean forms. Yeah. And second of all, the only place they can be getting them is from this increasingly popular, increasingly globalized South Korean, you know, popular culture, uh, which they're accessing in various ways, but typically, you know, mostly surreptitiously on USBs. And yeah. this is clearly perceived uh, as a threat on the one hand to all of the work they've done all these decades to kind of construct this different North Korean standardized language, but also clearly because it threatens some of the, you know, the gender norms that they, they've been trying to put in place. And this is probably one of the only places that we can see indirectly that the North Korean state fears information and, and entertainment coming in from South Korea, right? Because they, they don't normally publicly say, you know, don't watch South Korean dramas, listen to South Korean right. music. So we, we really have to infer it. Precisely. And this is why I think these kinds of cultural materials yeah. are, are so valuable, because if you if you read them closely and follow them over time, I think you can tease out certain kinds mm -hmm. of, of, of uh, fears like this or anxieties or panics, uh, you know, and, and our, 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 our dear friends who are out there, the, the pundits who are on TV every day talking about North Korea's nuclear this and, mm -hmm. you know, international security that. Yeah. Many of whom do not read Korean, and certainly, even if they do, don't bother with what they would just view as propaganda. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I think they're, I think they're potentially missing out on something. Well, that's why I'm very grateful to have you on the podcast today. I think it's, uh, it's important for us to not only be uh, doing podcasts about uh, political themes, but also tr to broaden it as much as possible. Basically, the NK News podcast, uh, as far as I can see, it should be open to anything related to North Korea at all, uh, and then it very much includes social and cultural areas. Uh, cultural production from within North Korea. Uh, the other thing I, I wanted to say was that, you know, I'm, I'm here on sabbatical for a few months and haven't been here for some years for any length of time, but I've become rather fascinated. You must know the show. It's called Iman Gap. Yes. It's a bit contrived. There's also uh, the Moranbong Club. Yeah, Moranbong Club as well. But I find the, the Iman Gap more interesting from uh, from a linguistic perspective. Mm. Um, on the one hand, I like list, listening to it just to hear the different North Korean accents that yeah. are on it. But linguistic issues do sometimes specifically get discussed, you know, um, and it's very interesting. And and one of the things that these these North Korean defectors frequently lament is is how difficult uh, it, it, some of this linguistic politeness stuff is for them in South Korea. Yeah, I remember uh, years ago, uh, gosh, in the early 2000s, seeing an interview with a, a North Korean refugee here in South Korea who uh, talked about what a faux pas it was to use the word agashi yes. to address uh, a woman in the office where he was working. He didn't know her name. He called her this. He thought that was quite acceptable. Right. And she basically responded, what am I, a waitress? You've put your finger on exactly the, the, the most, uh, the source of the most linguistic paranoia for, for defectors, which is ho-ching, uh, yeah. or in North Korea, you know, they call it how do you address someone? Right. Uh, and it's very different. And, and um, I don't know how they feel. 
Yeah, it was well. It's difficult for any learner yeah. of Korean, and and you know when they go to the Hana one here, where they I think it's the first three months they're yeah. here, they go there to essentially kind of be deprogrammed and reprogrammed and to learn how more about how to fit into South Korean society. There, I've seen their language textbooks, and and they're pretty lame. Interestingly, about a third of them are just English to help them deal with English, right? English used in Korean right, too, yeah. right. but it doesn't really deal much with linguistic politeness phenomena, and yet um, they, that's what they say they want. Well, thank you again uh, to Professor Ross King from the University of British Columbia for coming on the NK News podcast this week. Don't forget, listeners, you can listen to all of our shows as well as read full bios and show notes on our website, www.nknews.org. NK News is the leading repository of North Korean research, news and analysis, and we hope to see you there. And you can send feedback comments, questions, or guest suggestions to podcast at nknews.org. Our podcast was produced, as always, by Arias Dare and facilitated by Chad O'Carroll and Christina Lee. Uh, now, I happen to study North Korean graphic novels for my master's thesis. If any of our listeners are interested, you can Google Jacko's Wetsuit and North Korean graphic novels, and you can find both the uh, master's thesis that I wrote for Leiden University online in PDF form and a shorter article that I wrote for Global Politics Review on children's literature uh, which contains some of the same material. <laughs>